and um, we are in chapter one. And so I'm going to give you a brief um, sort of review of what we covered last week. Um, and we're just going to read verses one through 12. Yeah, that's where we left off, verse 13. So we'll read verses 1 through 12, just to a quick review of those verses. Welcome to everybody here, those of you who walked in a little late, and those of you on Zoom. has got a great crowd in both places, thank God. Um, before we start, so I know you're awake, say amen. amen. Good one. Oh, that was a good one. And welcome, Nancy. And those of you on Zoom, say amen, so I know you're awake, even though I can't hear you. <laughs> great. Um, let's see. John... Uh, is obviously one of the four Gospels. John was the one that was the closest, really, to the Lord Jesus. He writes this as an eyewitness account, we said last week, probably around 95 AD. He's the last apostle left. He knows about the other Gospels, and what he writes is stuff he remembers, most of which 93% of the Gospel of John is not in the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So in any case... Um, he starts his gospel with a bang and just takes you to the mountaintop right away. What you'll see that's missing here is the whole Bethlehem story with Mary and Joseph and missing, right? Uh, Matthew and Luke cover that, um, not John. He knows that's already been written. So John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So the word we find out in verse 14 is the Lord Jesus Christ. The word has the whole idea of his message, his uh, voice, uh, but it's much more than that. It's, he's the word personified in flesh, we find out in verse 14. And verse 18, we find out that he, we will find out that he reveals God. You want to know what God is like? Look at the Lord Jesus. Watch how he reacts with people watch what he says. It's amazing. So this verse says that in the beginning, even before there was a beginning creation, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the word, the son of God already existed. He had no beginning. Um, the word was with God face to face. The word is intimate fellowship in Greek. It means that the, God, the father and the word were intimately, um, you know, together and loved one another's love in the Trinity. And that's the whole doctrine that you're seeing there. We said last week that if you don't know about the Trinity, this verse makes no sense because the word was with God. Just like I could be with Ken at a baseball game, but I wouldn't say I was with Ken and I was Ken, right? Then you'd think, hmm, you need counseling, right? You were with him and you are him. So um, Jesus is with the Father and Jesus is also fully God. He becomes flesh to demonstrate God to people, but also to die on the cross is the main reason. That's what one is talking about. Two just reiterates it. He was with God in the beginning. The Trinity is that there's three personages and all three are God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And yet the three are the one God. One what? three who's verse three through him all things were made without him nothing was made that's been made in other words there's a, a total a totality of everything that's ever was made or created trees people planets stars wind rain whatever you want to say rivers water the elements molecules it's all made by the lord jesus christ he was the 
agent through which God created the whole world. In verse 4, in him, that's the word, which is Christ, was life. And that life was the light of men. In him was life inherently. I didn't get life inherently. I got it from my parents, and so did you, right? And from God. In him was life, both physical life and more importantly, spiritual life is what he's talking about here. I'm just going quickly to review these verses. So in him is life. If you want spiritual life, he's the one place to get it. Uh, we're going to see and light, which illumines things and makes things visible and understandable. He is the one that reveals spiritually what goes on. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines, verse 5, in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. That word is hard to translate in Greek, understood, grasped it, overcome it, all those things. It can mean several of those things. But the darkness never overcomes the light. The light shines in the darkness, it says. Um, and the world is dark without God, obviously. There came a man, verse 6, sent from God. His name was John. He's talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist never did any miracles. He preached repentance and preparing for the kingdom of God. heaven is at hand, he kept saying. And uh, kind of a strange guy. We didn't. It, he doesn't go into all that here, but camel's hair outfit and locusts and honey. We're going to serve those later, those of you that like locusts. Uh, locusts and honey he ate, and he's just out in the wilderness preaching. He is related to the Lord Jesus. He's six months older because Elizabeth, his mother, he also has, by the way, a, a miraculous birth somewhat like Jesus does. Not virgin birth, but his parents are old, they're barren, and God gives them a child. So here comes a witness John wants us to know Jesus Christ, who he is, but interwoven in this chapter is the whole idea of witnessing. You're going to see it with John and five or six others just in the first chapter. Okay, uh, he came, as verse 7, as a witness to testify. That's what witnesses do. Concerning that light, meaning the word Christ, so that through him all men might do what? believe. Key word in this gospel happens, uh, I believe, 98 times just in whatever this is, 2021 chapters kind of thing. Um, so he's coming just as a witness to point to the light so that people will believe. Verse 8, he himself was not the light. In this chapter, the key word for John the Baptist is the word not. You'll see. Already we've seen it once. I'll show you where it comes up later. He's not the light. He's just pointing to the light. He only came as a witness to the light. Verse 9, the true light that comes, that sorry, that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Christ illumines every single life. You say, does that mean everybody gets saved? Uh, universalism, it's taught in some churches. Biblically, not true. Jesus is more than any other teacher in the New Testament, uh, teaches about hell a place of outer darkness where people send themselves. They say, no, thank you, God. I don't want Jesus, your only savior. They send themselves there. So this isn't universalism. So the question is, what does verse nine mean? It gives, the true light gives light to every man. 
in some sense, we have the revelation of creation, Romans 1, conscience, Romans 2, those are all God-given, but also sometimes God shines his light on a life and all it does is convicts people of sin, but they're never willing to turn from their sin and come to Jesus Christ. So there isn't salvation, but there is light given to every person one way or another. Um, D. James Kennedy used to say, respond to the light that God has given you and he'll give you more light, right? You're all here to get light. Unfortunately, it's kind of a dim, dimwit that's teaching. But anyway, verse 10, he, this is um, Christ. Again, he's back to Christ. That was a little parenthesis about John the Baptist. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. What an amazing thing. Christ was the creator of everything in the world. He shows up on the stage that he's created with the actors he's created, and they don't know him. They don't recognize him. He doesn't fit what they expect. Um, and so verse 11, he came to that which was his own, meaning in a broad sense, all of humanity, right? Because he created everybody. But specifically, a Jew writing this would think in terms of the Jews were his own people, right? He comes to the Jews announcing that he's their Messiah uh, on Palm Sunday, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey as predicted in Zechariah. But they... His own did not receive him, the end of verse 11. Yet to all who received him, now we're going to talk about salvation. But I want you to see it's like a coin, two sides. Watch. Verse 12, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What an astounding thing that human beings could become children of God. But there's two criteria here. And in some sense, they're the same, but from two different viewpoints. What are the criteria? Verse 12, to all who what? Received him. Verse 12, you have to receive him. We said last week, and I have it in the notes again as well, that you have to receive Jesus, listen, for who and what he is, right? In other words, you can't say, well, I received Jesus as a great um, miracle worker. And when I need a healing or some money or something, um, then I'll call on him. Well, he is a miracle worker. Is, is that receiving him? No. Or you could say, I think he was a great teacher, but I, you know, I think Buddha had some good ideas. And I think Muhammad had some great things to say. He's one of my teachers. I receive him. I receive him. I think he's sort of like Abraham Lincoln. Remember we said that last week, kind of ridiculous, right? Who is this Jesus that you receive? You have to receive him. He calls himself Lord of the universe and demands that he is your Lord and you are his servant. So we receive him in the role in which he's been shown as creator, as Lord of the world, as savior. There's people that receive him as savior. He saves me. It's hell. It's fire insurance. That's why I believe in Jesus, just to get out of hell. I don't want him interfering in my life. I've got some things I don't want anybody to know about. But as far as salvation, he can be my savior. I was drowning in the lake. He saved me and dragged me to the edge. Great. See you later, Jesus. That's not biblical, right? It's not see you later. It, to save you, he has to be your Lord, not advisor. By the way, Tim Keller used to say, still does probably, Dr. Tim Keller in New York, used to say, this person, the word who's the creator, who was face to face with God, who is the Messiah, who is the sinless one, who loves you, 
Is that the sort of person you tell, I'd just like you to be my advisor. And when I ring the bell, you come calling and help me out. Otherwise, leave me alone. Are you kidding? You either, he's, he has a whole sermon, Tim Keller called crown me or kill me. Meaning that's the only two options. Either you crown him as your king and bow to him, or you yell with the Jews that, that yelled this, crucify him. There's nothing in between really. Well, no, I'm on the fence. To be on the fence is like to be stalled on the railroad tracks with a car that doesn't run. And here comes the train. No decision. You could run or you could try to push the car. But if you just sit there, I'm just not going to commit. You committed, didn't you? The train's going to do some damage, right? Um, verse 12, go back to that again. To all who received him in the way that he prescribes in the Bible, Who's the, here's the second criteria, to those who believed in his name. Now, that doesn't mean the name is a magic mantra. You just say Jesus, and in the name of Jesus, it means in, in a Bible context, in that society, in that culture, a person's name was all that they are. So it's another way of saying, believed in him, like I said earlier, for who and what he truly is, not what you perceive him to be, what the Bible says he is. When you receive him that way, when you believe in his name, that authority, how many have heard the saying, stop in the name of the law? You ever heard that? It used to be, not anymore, right? That a policeman would say that and the law, the name of the law had great authority, right? Stop in the name of the law. People don't care that much about that anymore. It's not right, but it's the way it is. Um, believed in his name. Um, he gave the, these people the right to become children of God. That's an amazing thing. That means that if you believe and have received him, that you are one of his kids. It's astounding to me. We don't deserve this or earn it. It's not because we were more spiritual. But what you're seeing in verse 12 is Side one of a two-sided coin, you know, flipping a coin, we'll call it the tails side. What do you mean? A lot of things in the Bible are presented two different ways and they cause confusion and they doesn't need to be because the two different ways are man's viewpoint, which we just read. I need to, okay, receive him and I need to believe in his name. And singularly, I don't believe in anything else for salvation, not my good works, not the fact that my mom was a Christian and my dad was. But on the other hand, that's the human side of the coin. So it sounds like so far, if the Bible stopped at verse 12, you would think, I need to do this and be saved. And you'd be right. But verse 13 is God's side. Watch. And verse 13 is going to eliminate any human effort to make this happen. Verse 13. Children of God, verse 12 ends. Children born, there's that word again, not of three different things. Not of, NIV is not as good as NASB here. Not of natural descent, nor human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. Okay, what's going on here? He's saying, how do you become a child of God? Not born of natural descent. Number one, that means it ain't a race thing. Well, I'm Jewish, I'm automatically saved. Or my parents, my grandparents were Christians, I'm in. It's in my genes. No, God has no grandchildren. We have to come to him individually in faith. But we're not born because of our descent, first of all, our nationality or our, the 
what our parents were. Not of natural descent, number two, nor of human decision or human will. Okay, what does that mean? Human, I decided on my own to come to Christ. Wrong. No, you didn't. Jesus calls you to come and we respond. In a relationship, there's always someone, you know, Larry and Marlene here are married. Somebody in that relationship, I won't ask you, somebody made the first move, right? My wife and I, wasn't my wife, it was me. I made the first move. Okay, in the relationship you have with God, you may think I was seeking, I was spiritual, I came to him, I made the decision. Baloney, that's the Greek word for that. God chose you. You responded, you received the gift, but God's the one that chose you. Okay, so children not born of natural descent, not of a human decision. Okay, Ephesians 2 says we, before we were saved, were not sick spiritually, dead. Dead people don't get up and choose God. It takes being what? Chapter 3, born again. Marlene just said it. Okay, what's the third one? A husband's will. Or um, what does, who has New American Standard here? Anybody? Okay, uh, Juanita, what is, what's the last phrase there? Of uh, 12, of uh, 13, sorry. 13? Yes. Okay, not of, the, not of blood, that's the descent, not of the will of the flesh, meaning I wanted to do it, so I came to Jesus on my own, nor the will of man. It is male in the Greek there, so it's husband's will. In other words, my dad and mom decided to have a child, and they were going to raise him Christian, and that's why I'm a Christian. It's none of the above. Well, what is it then? Last four words, at least in NIV, it's four words, but born of God. God chose when you were going to be born. Remember when you were born? No, you don't, right? Came out of your mom's womb. Did you choose your parents and what day and what time? You may think you did. Forget it. It's all God. That's the point of this. The beauty of this is that there's no boasting. If there is a human's will, like I was more spiritual than those unbelievers, then I could boast. But if it's nothing more than God making me alive in Christ, then it's a beautiful thing that there's no boasting. I can't look down my nose, my spiritual nose at anybody born of God. We said last week that the, uh, that true belief in Christ is spelled K-A-T. Do you remember that? I bet none of you remember what the acronym is. It's the wrong way to spell cat. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with saving faith, you have to have the K, knowledge, a basic understanding of the gospel. You don't have to be a theologian, but you have to basically understand, I'm a sinner, I can't save myself, I deserve judgment from God, but God loved me, sent his son to die in my place, having lived the perfect life, I couldn't live, no sin, and then he offers me his righteousness in exchange for my garbage, his gold for my garbage. I mean, what's your garbage? all my guilt, all my sin, all my shame. And so you have to have at least a basic idea, knowledge, a agreement. You have to agree it's true, right? You can say, I understand that. I just don't agree with it. You have to agree it's true. The T is trust. You have to trust in that and that only for your salvation. When those three are present, we have salvation. With those things comes good works, but the works aren't done to earn salvation. They're done in response to it or gratitude for it, if you will. Um, okay, so how are we born again? Born of God, 
not our decision, not a human husband's will, not dissent. Okay, so up to this point, all we've heard is the word became flesh. The, I'm sorry, we didn't hear that yet. The word was God, the word we created the world, the world was with God. The word was light and life to the human race. Who is it, right? He's kept us waiting. You know, of course, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling. It literally is tabernacled among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, let's take that apart. First of all, the word became flesh. Why doesn't God just show up? He did. If God showed up in the totality of his glory and might and power and light, the book of Exodus tells us, this is a weird thing. No man can see God and live. In the totality of who and what he is, Isaiah sees God and a, a, a vision of God, but not fully who he is. And even that, he's undone, can't handle it uh, because he lives as an unclean person and he knows it. The word became flesh. Listen, if you can imagine a king in a palace worth a billion dollars, okay, the queen of England worth tons of many billions, right? If you can imagine her working, cleaning toilets in a gas station in Bakersfield, okay? That's a huge step down. That's not even close to how big of a step down Jesus Christ took as the word fully God in heaven with God the Father to come to earth and take on flesh and blood in order to live the perfect life and die for us this is gross, but I'm sorry, it's true. The analogy I usually give, and this isn't even enough, is a king in a palace becoming uh, a little worm in a rotten tomato at the dump, okay? What a step down. You say, why would he even do that, the king? Why didn't he just stay up? Because he loved you, that's why, right? So the word became flesh. This is the doctrine known as the incarnation in Latin, carne, C-A-R-N-E. In fact, if you speak Spanish, carne means meat, flesh, okay? Incarnation, that God became a man. He did not divest himself or get rid of any attribute of deity. What do you mean? I mean, he had two natures, fully God, fully man, not half and half, um, but he voluntarily did not exercise his deity or show it um, except when it was for other people's benefit, okay? He's tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Do you remember that? And the devil knows you're hungry, dude. Just turn these rocks into stone. Do it for yourself. He won't do it because it's not for other people. Yet, Later on, John chapter six, he's going to multiply loaves and fishes, right? And make dinner for a bunch of people, thousands of people. The word became flesh and made his dwelling or dwelt among us. The reason he comes, yes, he comes to do miracles, to teach, to live the perfect life. He comes really for one reason. And you'll see that John the Baptist gets it shortly. He comes to die. That's why he comes. He knows that's his mission. He comes to die because without the shedding of blood, there's no payment or remission for sin. Could anybody else have done the sacrifice he did? No. Why not? Why couldn't Moses, Abraham, David, Noah, 
Jonah, anybody else, because they're all sinners. That's why. None of you could have done it. Only one human being was ever sinless, the Lord Jesus Christ. The word became flesh. At the time John's writing this, there are the docetists and the Gnostics, which is a sort of a cultic thing that's starting to happen in Christianity. Okay? And the two groups believed different things about Jesus. One group believed, yeah, he was great, but he wasn't really a man. It looked like he was a man. He wasn't really a man. Okay? John wants you to know the word became flesh, truly was a physical man, okay? Then there were people that claimed he was a great man. He wasn't really God. Come on. That's a lot to ask of a human being, both God and man. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and now we get another testimony. We, John means himself and the other apostles, we have seen his glory, brightness, awesomeness. I don't know how else to say it. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay. When did they see his glory? A lot of people point to the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, he takes Peter, James, and John up there, basically shows him who he really is, right? Like Clark Kent pulling back the shirt, and there's the brightness of not the Superman um, uniform, but instead the brightness of God. Remember? Um, so there's that. But anytime you heard him speak or do a miracle or command nature, walk on water and all of that, tell the storm to shh, and it stopped, you're seeing his absolute glory, his beauty. We saw, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only monogeneus in Greek. This is one unique son. I thought he said, I thought you said earlier, we could become sons and daughters, children of God. Yes, we can. But he's the one and only. We become that. He was always that. You understand? Unique. He's the unique son of God who came from the father, from heaven, full of grace and truth. Okay, grace gets thrown around in Christian circles. I like to define terms because I bet you there's someone in this room going, yeah, what is grace? You mean like he was graceful? It was like kind of a ballet dancer. Listen, if I hire Pablo to, he's a plumber, okay, to redo the all the plumbing in my house, okay, and he says $55,000 is what I will do it for, and he does it, that's probably too low, huh? Anyway, he, <laughs> sorry, he's kind of shaking his head. He does the job and I pay him 55,000. Is that grace? No, that's wages. He earned it. You got it? He did the work. I paid him. Okay. If I don't pay him the 55,000, that's called a ripoff, right, Pablo? <laughs> if he does the work 55,000 worth and I give him 100,000, there's some grace in there, 45,000 worth that he didn't deserve. On the other hand, if I find out Pablo and his wife are having great financial problems and they're really in big trouble, and a few of us get together and anonymously give him a bunch of money, that's grace. He didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it, right? We didn't owe it. That's how we're saved, by grace. God doesn't owe it. We can't deserve it or earn it. No matter what we do, it's a free gift. Grace and truth. Now, I don't have to define truth to you. It is that which is, right? The truth. Now, that sounds great, doesn't it? I want to know the truth. 
the truth about God, the truth about life on earth, the afterlife. That's what this book is. But I'm making it sound like it's not that great. And it isn't. Part of it isn't. Because that includes the truth about yourself, about me. Okay, this book is like a mirror because we look in the mirror. We think we know what we look like. We think we know what we're like. This mirror exposes who and what we really are. The sinners, the bad stuff that nobody knows, the thoughts, the prejudice, the hatred, the greed, the sexual immorality that goes on. Maybe just here. Maybe it goes on elsewhere. Whatever it is, the truth, the beauty of it is that he gives us the ability by giving us his Holy Spirit to change those things. Grace and truth comes from Jesus Christ. Uh, John 14, 6, he says about himself, I am the way, the truth, truth, you see that, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me, one way. It's been said, Christians are so, you people are so narrow. But can't there be many ways to God and you just have one of them, right? I like to say, you know, truth is narrow. Have you ever noticed that? Three plus two is five. It's not 19. It's not 140. It's not 2 billion. It's not six. It's five. That's so narrow. In the new math, it's whatever you want it to be. Sorry, three plus two is Five, you are where you are right now. Those of you here, you're in Oakhurst, California. You're not in Beijing. You're not in Oklahoma City. You're here. Truth is narrow by nature. Okay, now that I've made everybody feel guilty, let's move on. Verse 15, John, now we're back to John the Baptist. He's weaving in that we're supposed to be testifying about Christ. John, verse 15, testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And you say, oh no, here we go again. Mumbo jumbo. He was with God and he was God. Now what's this about before me and after me? He's testifying, pointing to Jesus. This is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me, he's predicting Jesus is going to show up one of these days as I'm baptizing people. He's saying, um, the one that comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. In other words, the one that comes after me, because John the Baptist started his ministry before Jesus started his. Okay, So in that sense, he comes after John the Baptist in time. You with me so far? John the Baptist starts baptizing, preaching repentance, screaming and yelling like a crazy man in the wilderness. He wasn't a crazy man. We'll see in a second. And then Jesus shows up. We're going to see that encounter in a three-day story John's going to tell in a second. But he says, the one that comes after me has surpassed me, meaning he's greater than me. And here's the reason, because he was before me. Oh, Jesus is older? No, John the Baptist is older. So that can't be what it means. What do you mean Jesus was before me? John has been shown by God somehow supernaturally. John, your relative, Jesus, who's six months-ish younger than you, is way older. What? He's always existed. 
In the Old Testament, when Isaiah speaks of the Messiah, he says he's the father of eternity. That he, you can't go back far enough to find his beginning because there isn't one. The man, listen, make the distinction, distinction. You know, Jesus Christ, the name. Christ means Messiah, anointed one. Jesus means the man in Bethlehem. So there's a sense in which Jesus, the man in Bethlehem, started in Bethlehem about 2,000 years ago. You with me? However, the Christ, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, the Word, the Logos is what that word means, has no beginning. Okay? Because he's God. John knows that and says, even though he starts after me, even though he's younger than me, he, he has surpassed me because he was way before me. Verse 15, that's what he's saying. Verse 16, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Grace upon grace. It's a difficult Greek um, sentence to, to translate. And what it basically means is, what we've received upon him from him is one blessing after the other. Like standing on the, in the waves of the ocean and one wave rolls over you and here comes another one. And here comes another one. It's just one blessing after another. More grace. What's grace again? Grace is good stuff that you don't deserve. That you didn't earn. God didn't know it. He just keeps giving to us. In theological circles, there is what's called um, sort of general grace. And then there's specific grace. You say, could you make this a little simpler? I'm trying. General grace. The sun came up this morning, right? It rained earlier this year. That's grace. Mankind doesn't deserve rain or sunshine. The planet didn't spin out of its orbit and we didn't all die. That's grace. All of your hearts are breathing, are beating. All of your lungs are working properly. Most of you anyway, right? Um, most of you can see and hear me. That's grace, general grace. And that goes for you believers and for me. And it goes for the worst unbelievers that have ever lived. There's general grace. They have talents. They have food to eat. There's all kinds of general grace. Specific grace is stuff like giving you the Holy Spirit, giving you salvation, giving you, wait for it, forgiveness for your sins. Every single thing you ever said, did, or thought that was against God's will. That's grace, undeserved good stuff. Um, okay, now I lost my place. Okay, out of his fullness, we've received grace upon grace. If they just keep coming like waves, one after the other. Um, but now he's going to bring in Moses. Okay, so the reason I want to give you a hint, a lot of scholars in the commentaries I read said this grace upon grace is a bridge for him to talk about Judaism, okay? Which was also grace, but not as good as Christ's grace. Why do, you, why do you say that? The Old Testament, God showed them who he was by saying, here's my law, do this and live. Thou shalt not steal, lie, commit adultery, have any other gods, you know, all that stuff. Remember those things? Problem is, we couldn't do it. Jews couldn't do it. Nobody could do it. So there was more grace, sacrifice for sin. Sacrifice a lamb, and it's as if the lamb is taking your place in Judaism. You with me? And the problem with that is 
it's not really forgiveness, it's a covering for sin. Because next year, Ken and his family have to bring another lamb and more sacrifice. You know why? Because Ken and his family sinned again. So did me and my family, okay? Jesus comes as the lamb of God we're about to see. So now let's look at Moses, verse 17. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, pretty good. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's true. The law was given through Moses, okay? And the law showed us something about who is this God? What does he want? What is the conduct he expects from us and wants from us? But we can't do it because we're born with a sin nature. The proclivity, the slanting toward being selfish, toward being prejudiced, toward being angry at people, toward being lustful, toward being greedy, all of the above. And it's different for everybody. So the laws given through Moses, that's the comparison. Grace and truth, though, come through Jesus Christ. What we couldn't do, live the perfect life, he did. What we don't want to do, die the horrible death of separation from God forever in hell, he took our place on the cross. That's real grace, right? He chose to make the first move in the relationship. Um, okay, so now we know the word became flesh. It's Christ, verse 18. No one has ever seen God in his totality of who and what he is. But the one and only son who is himself God and is in close relationship with the father, he has made him, God the father, known. He has revealed him, some translations have. In other words, you want to know what God is like, look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the love. Look at the lack of respect of persons. Who does he hang out with? The prostitutes, the sinners, the drunks, the thieves, the tax collectors, remember? And the religious leaders go berserk over that. And he's saying, right, do you remember? The sick are the ones that need a doctor. I'm the doctor of their souls. I'm here to help them. I'm not here to hang with the so-called good people pretty amazing. So he, Jesus Christ, has revealed God in a way we never could have known uh, in any other way. Um, we already talked about Moses and Christ. Let's do it a little more. Moses gives the law and points to the gospel via a lamb, right? Sacrifice. Jesus fulfills the law, never sins, and is the lamb, the sacrifice that we need. Moses makes the first covenant and a makeshift tabernacle, remember, in the desert, a place to worship. The tabernacle was supposed to be a place where God met people. The intersection, if you will, between the vertical God and the horizontal human beings. Notice it forms a cross. What a coincidence. No, it's not. Jesus Christ is the place where man and God meet, literally because he's God and man. And for us, he is that intersection. He's our mediator. Moses was the mediator of the first covenant. The second covenant is way better. Moses instituted the Passover with the lamb, the sacrifice. Jesus is that lamb. We'll see in just a second. Um, Moses, you may know, led the Jewish people 
to and toward the promised land. Pretty good. But because he sinned, do you remember? Moses never makes it in. You'll never set foot in there because you disobeyed me, says God, about something that was very important. We won't go into that now. It comes up later in the Gospel of John. Jesus Christ leads us all the way in. Who took Moses' place to lead the Jews into the promised land? It's interesting, isn't it? Joshua, right? Which is the same Hebrew name, Yeshua. Okay? It's distinguished so we won't get messed up. Joshua is the name Yeshua. Jesus is the name Yeshua. He is our better leader who leads us into the promised land. Um, we already talked about all that. Oh gosh, I've got so many notes here. I kind of overdid it this week. You overdo it every week. Yes, I know. Um, the law says, here's God's rules, do it. And we can't, right? Jesus says, I did it. I kept the law and you need a savior. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus showing Jews, you can't do it. At one point, he says, be as good as you can. No, he doesn't. What does he say? Be perfect. In other words, unless you can be perfect, you need a savior. Here I am. That's what he's saying in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, let's see. Um, Jesus has said that he is, it's said that he is in the bosom of the Father in one translation, in closest relationship, NIV has. That's the idea of um, absolute love and unity for the Father and the Son. Um, God is invisible, okay? That's true throughout the Bible. Unless he decides to let himself be seen, he's invisible. You may have heard of infrared, you know, light, invisible to human eyes, okay? The Bible says wherever two or three are gathered in his name, Jesus's name, there he is, in their midst. Do you remember that? We're more than two or three here. And on Zoom, we have 74 screens, which is a little over 100 people probably. He's with us. You say, I'm looking. Is it the guy in the green shirt back there? No, certainly not the guy in the white shirt. I'll tell you that. But he's here with us. There is a spiritual realm that we are not able to see with physical human eyes. But how many have heard this? Seeing is believing. The Bible says, believing is seeing, right? The, I believe in this Savior with all my heart. I'm more sure of that than I am that I'm sitting on this stool in Oakhurst teaching a Bible study, and yet I've never seen him, but I have seen his influence in my life. How many here believe in wind? You know, wind outside? Yeah. I got news for you. You've never seen wind ever. No, we have. No, wind is moving air. You can't see air. So moving air, you can't see, but I've seen the trees. Exactly. You've seen the effect of the wind. You haven't seen the wind. I've seen the effect in my life and others of this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm, that's why I'm certain it's all true. Okay. No one has seen God, the one, one and only son. It was in closest relationship in the bosom of the father has made him known. Verse 19 Let's see, we're good on time. Yeah, so getting close, but we're still good on time. Jesus is the ultimate revealer of God. I have in my notes, I forgot to mention that. 
By the way, I always get home from Bible study and remember, oh, I forgot to say that and that and that. I almost want to call you each up and go, here's the other stuff. You got a minute? Anyway, it's a problem, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> let's see. Verse 19. So now we're going to get a bunch of witnesses, almost like a trial. Okay. Verse 19. Now this was John's, that's John the Baptist's, testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Okay, here's the scenario. The priests and the Levites are formally educated Jewish, smart and often wealthy dudes, okay, who are the leaders of Israel, of Judaism. They've studied, they got their degree in the law, okay, the Old Testament law. They've been hearing from people. Have you seen the, the nutcase out in the wilderness? Who? There's a guy out there, John the Baptist, who's preaching repentance, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Repent, change your life, come here and get baptized. Okay, I got news for you. Baptism wasn't invented by Christians. Jews had baptism. Do you know who it was for? Non-Jews who wanted to become Jews. Um somebody comes to the Jews and say, I believe in your God. I want to be a Jew. The weird thing is they would have to be dunked in water. And usually the guy wanting to be converted would do it himself. I'm just going to go under and symbolizing that I'm washing from my old sinful pagan ways. I'm going to become a Jew. For Jews to admit I need to be baptized just like I'm a, a pagan is pretty amazing. John the Baptist, I'm calling him a nutcase. Listen, he was probably the greatest preacher ever, right? To get people to come out into the desert and agree as Jews, yeah, you can baptize me. I need this. I'm sinful too. The religious leaders have heard about it and they're up in arms. He's not one of us. He hasn't been to our schools. He doesn't have the degree, the title. We better go find out who this guy is. Let's take our two minute break right now and stretch our aging bodies and bones. Don't go away, I'll be back in two minutes. I'm just gonna turn my screen off. Find your seats if you will, and we'll get started again. We are in the gospel of John chapter one, and we're gonna pick it up in verse 19. Uh, we already did actually. So they've come, they've sent a delegation to interrogate this John the Baptist weirdo, who do you think you are preaching? You're not one of us, okay? That's what 19 is about. Verse 20, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. Here's the word not. I am not the Messiah. I'm not the anointed one that's supposed to come and save Israel and save Gentiles as well. I'm not him. Okay, very simple. That let's just get that out of the way. He's saying he's got a huge following, by the way, <clears throat> John the Baptist. So not verse 21, they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? I am not. A lot of not. Are you the prophet? He answered, or that prophet, some translations have. No, not, not, not. That's John the Baptist's mantra. Okay, what's going on here? Are you the Messiah? Because there were probably some rumors, this guy's out in the desert preaching baptism. Maybe this is the guy. Remember, no miracles, just great preaching and the baptism. Okay, so he gets that out of the way. I'm not the Messiah. 
Are you Elijah? You say, well, who's, who's that? This is a prophet that lived hundreds of years before this. Okay. Well, so he's dead? No. What? How old is he? Elijah is one of just a couple of examples in the Bible with weird endings. Okay. Elijah gets taken to heaven in a chariot of fire. Say what? Don't kill the messenger. That's what happened. He didn't die. Enoch is a Gentile. Same thing happened. Well, similar thing. God just took him. Okay. Those are the exceptions, not the rule, obviously. Um, but in the Old Testament twice, there's a prediction that before the day of the Lord comes, before the Messiah shows up, God says, I'm going to send you Elijah to come and preach. Elijah dressed very similarly, ate the same weird food, no Wendy's burgers, no In-N-Out burgers, weird stuff, okay, and preached in a very similar way. That's why they ask him, are you Elijah? Okay, now here's where it gets a little weird. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Jo John the Baptist is asked directly, are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. Jesus says to the disciples in another gospel, if you're willing to accept it, John the Baptist was Elijah who was to come. Oh, reincarnation? And it, No, I didn't say that. He comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah, which was the Holy Spirit, okay? He's not Elijah, the person. There's no reincarnation in the Bible. There's resurrection, much different. John comes preaching in the spirit and the power of Elijah. That's why they ask, are you Elijah? And he says, no. He would know, okay? Then there's this weird one, are you the prophet? Notice, not a prophet. Are you the prophet? In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses is, uh, I got to come back to that. I hope I remember. Moses is predicting that God's going to send another prophet like Moses and that they are to listen to him. It's Deuteronomy 18, 15. Okay. Um, and the Jews started referring to that guy as that prophet. They knew there had been Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all these other prophets. They weren't that one. It turns out in Acts 3, we find out that prophet is, wait for it, Christ. That's the one they're supposed to listen to, the greater Moses, if you will. Um, but we're not in Acts, so we won't go there now. But that's what's going on. Acts 3, 19 to 22 is where that's covered. So um, that's why they ask him, are you that prophet? And he says, no. Um, verse 20. Two, finally, and they're a little exasperated here. Well, who are you? They said, give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Okay. Now, instead of, are you this? No. Are you that? No. Well, then just tell us, what do you say? Who are you? John replied, verse 23, in the words of Isaiah, the prophet, this is part of that prediction about the forerunner or the herald announcing the Messiah is about to show up, get ready, kind of thing, repent. 
I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. It's almost as if he's announcing the king is coming. Let's plow these roads. Let's make a straight path for him. And I don't mean literal roads. I mean a road into your own soul and spirit and heart by cleaning up, not the roads, not the desert, your life, which is a desert. Clean it up because he's here any second now kind of thing. He's quoting right out of um, Isaiah. And do I know which verse? Yes, I do, because I have notes. 40 verse 3. Um, yeah, get cleaned up for a royal visit is kind of what he's saying. Uh, yeah, we already talked about that. Verse 24. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet? In other words, in Judaism, you're acting as a religious expert and um, uh, authority, and you're nothing. You don't have a degree. You don't have the, look at these robes we wear. Who are you? Why, why are you baptizing then? By the way, they don't say it, but I told you earlier, if Bob here wanted to become a Jew and he was a Gentile, he would baptize him. He would tell the Jews about it. And the Jews would say, go to the Jordan River. We'll go with you. D dunk yourself. But he's baptizing, indicating authority. They want to know, what's your authority? Why do you baptize if you're not Messiah? You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. Verse 26. He's going to make a distinction now. Listen, I baptize with water, John replied. But among you, among you, meaning he's here, among you stands one you do not know. Because he hasn't started the ministry yet, Christ, right? He's at least 30 years old, Jesus is. John the Baptist, same age, six months older, kind of thing. Among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. And compare yourself to him, John. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. You say, what's going on there? Um, I wore sandals tonight just to, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I actually did, but I don't want anybody to untie them. I wouldn't do that to you. Rabbis, teachers in that culture were normally not paid. Okay. So they would have though disciples who would stay with them and learn from them. And as a sort of a payment, the disciples, it was normal for a rabbi to say, uh, disciple Robert, um, would you go to the grocery store and get me a couple of things? Here's the money. And the guy would go, or maybe the guy would even pay for his groceries, little ways of blessing him. They had to draw the line somewhere so where they drew the line was a rabbi. It was improper and never done that a rabbi would say, touch my shoes. The shoes, remember, they don't have pavement. The roads were muddy. The roads were dusty. The roads were dirty. There were bugs. There was disease. There was all kinds of bad stuff. Feet were gross. Remember who washed the disciples' feet? You know, don't you? Wow. Humility. So the rabbi could not say um, to one of his disciples, come here and uh, untie my sandals and wash my feet. It was considered out of bounds. You don't do that. Now, bring it back. John says, this guy I'm talking about, 
who comes after me, his, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, a job that is too menial for any uh, of my disciples, for me, I'm not even good enough to untie his sandals. The lowest slave would be the one that would wash feet. Uh, usually, by the way, not a Jew, a Gentile, but there were exceptions. Okay, that's how great he is. Verse 28, this all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Okay, minor point here. Um, Bethany, um, this is on one side of the Jordan. On the other side of the Jordan, the Jerusalem side of the Jordan, there's another town called Bethany where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live. This is a different Bethany uh, because it's on the other side of the Jordan. Not a big point, but it will be on the test, so you might want to write it down. Just kidding. Um, that's where John was baptizing. The next day, verse 29, so here come the start of the days. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold, NIV has look, it's too weak. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We could spend a week on this. We won't, but we could. Behold. Behold look has, look, there's the sunset. Behold is wow. Yeah, she said it, Doreen, wow. This is something outrageously amazing. Get the binoculars, put your glasses on, zoom in. This is a big deal. Behold, okay, next thing, God's lamb. That's what the lamb of God means. Each family would have to have a lamb for Passover because they had sinned for a sacrifice. He's saying, look, here comes God's own lamb. The lamb. What do you mean? Doesn't say one of many of God's lambs. There's only one. Well, aren't there other sacrifices? Not like this one. The singular Lamb of God, who, what does he do? He takes away the sin of the world. The lambs that were sacrificed on Passover did not take away the sin of the world. They only covered the sin. Next year, next year you'll be back because you're going to sacrifice again because you sinned again. We already covered that with Ken. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin singular of the world. Okay. So, you said earlier, Joe, there's no such thing as universalism where everybody goes to heaven. I sure wish that was true. So do I. But see, God is fair. He's totally just. And there has to be a payment for sin. Every single sin, in the end, gets paid for. And there's only two possibilities. Jesus paid for your sin, and you, by faith, believe in that, and you go to heaven. Or you say, no thanks, I don't want Jesus, I'll take my chances. In that case, you will pay for your own sins outside of the presence of God because that's what you wanted. But nobody uh, doesn't go to one of those two scenarios, if you will. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Wait a minute, you say, it says he took away the sin of the world. What about that? Listen. Imagine all the cumulative sins of the world, not just now, but everybody that's ever lived. Every act of thievery, of murder, of lust, of child abuse, of 
stealing, greed of selfishness, racism. You could, we could be here all night, right? All of that guilt. Did Jesus take away the sin of the world and bear the sins of the world? Yes. Okay, so everybody's saved. No. Why not? Because by faith, we have to receive the gift, okay? If I said, all, all of you who are here tonight, 35 or so, 40 people, I've got a gift up here for each one of you. It's wrapped. It has your name on it. Before you leave, make sure you pick it up. If 20 of you leave without taking the gift, okay, did you receive the gift? No. Okay, now let's make it a little more amazing. Let's say, by the way, before you leave tonight, I've got a box for each one of you. Inside the box is a million dollars in cash for each one of you. Now, 30 of you would not even come up here because, come on, it's too good to be true. But there might be some that go, well, you never know, right? And you open it up and it's $1,000 bills, right? The point is, his death on the cross, listen, is sufficient to pay for the sin of the world because he was the perfect lamb of God. It's sufficient. There's enough money in the bank account, but it is effective, listen, only for those who receive it by faith. Do you see the difference? It's sufficient to pay for the sins of the world. Theoretically, if every single human being that ever lived had said, I believe in Jesus, I confess he's my Lord and Savior, I'm going to follow him, everybody would get saved. But that's not what happens, is it? It's sufficient for the sins of the world. It's effective only for the ones who accept it by faith. Look, the lamb, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Imagine that you're a disciple, and he did have them, of John, uh, John the Baptist. By the way, John the Apostle was an apostle, was a disciple of John the Baptist. I'll show you that in a second. Imagine your dude, John the Baptist, saying, here he is. Look. Everybody, behold the Lamb of God. Everybody, you'd be everybody'd be like, wow, that's him, right? John's purpose is follow him now, not me. Right? That's his goal. John doesn't care. Oh no, I'm losing the numbers now. He he's rejoicing if everybody split and went after Jesus. They don't, but a lot do. Verse 30: This is the one I meant. When I said, a man comes after me, who, sorry, who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. That repeats a verse earlier. Do you remember? Right around verse 16, I think it was 15. This is the one I meant. Remember when I told you there's somebody greater than me? This is the guy. He's the Lamb of God. Now listen, I want you to notice what he doesn't say. Behold the great teacher of God. Behold the great example. Do what he does. You can't. Behold the Lamb of God. Do you know, we love that term, don't we? The Lamb of God. There's songs about it, right? But for Jesus, that's a reminder. You're going to the cross, dude. You're going to die for this. You're going to, it's going to be bloody, just like those lambs. His whole purpose is really to die in our place out of love, the greatest act of love. Verse 31, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with waters was that he might be revealed to Israel. Israel rejects him, then he gets revealed to the Gentiles. Gentile means non-Jews. I myself did not know him. Now, he may have known him 
as his relative, right? They grew up in different areas. Maybe they didn't see each other much. He knew, you know, you got a second cousin who, or somebody, whoever he was, we don't know what the relative situation was, but he means I didn't know him in the sense of, is that, he may have thought maybe he's the guy. He didn't know. Jesus hasn't done any miracles yet, but he knows it's him. It's been revealed to him supernaturally. So that's why he announces it. That's what John the Baptist is. He's the announcer. He's the Ed McMahon for Johnny Carson. Okay. What a terrible reference. Okay. Let's keep rolling. Uh, verse, verse 32. Then John gave this testimony. Now we're going to get testimony from John the Baptist himself. I saw the spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, watch for this. The man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Okay, there's a lot going on there. Let's take it apart. So he didn't know him, but the one who sent me to baptize, that's God the Father, had told him supernaturally, watch for this. You're going to see a lot of people, John, coming and going, getting baptized. There will be one guy that you see supernaturally, the Holy Spirit descend like a dove and remain on him, land on him, meaning permanently. Listen, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit temporarily came upon people to prophesy, okay? David prophesies. David writes some of the Psalms, and the Holy Spirit came upon him. When David sinned with Bathsheba, do you know what he said to God? Please don't take your Holy Spirit from me, because that was a real possibility. You say, well, I have the Holy Spirit. I'm a believer. That's right. Is that the same for me if I sin? No. The Holy Spirit unpacked and is going to stay inside of you. You can grieve him. You can make him bummed out and upset. He's not going to move out. Okay. Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes down as a dove from heaven, white bird of peace. You know, you could go back to Noah's Ark for all that. Notice that the Holy Spirit remains on him. He sees it supernaturally. This is testified to in the other gospels, but this is the only place we learn John saw it. That's how he knew. That was the, this was the tell that God had told John the Baptist, look for this. And he saw it. So he's testifying. I saw uh, the Holy Spirit come upon him and stay on him. Verse 34, I have seen, and I testify that this is God's chosen one, the Messiah. So that's a pretty amazing testimony. Is there any more testimony in this chapter? Tons. And we still have time. You're out of luck. We're going to keep rolling. Verse 35, the next day, notice the chronology. That was one day. The next day, Sounds like eyewitness testimony because John, almost certainly John, the apostle who wrote the gospel of John, Revelation, first, second, and third John, five books, was there and heard this. The next day, John was there again. That's John the Baptist. John, the apostle who writes John, never uses his name. He calls himself the apostle Jesus loved or another apostle. Never refers to himself. By the way, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, same thing. They never say, and then I... They never do that. It's all about Christ. The next day, verse 35, 
The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. It turns out one of them is John, the writer of this gospel. I'll show you why we know that. With two of his disciples, he's there again. Verse 36, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. One of the commentators wrote, from the time he saw, John the Baptist saw the Holy Spirit descend on John like a dove, he says it when he sees it, right? It sounds like every time he sees him after that, he can't resist it. There he is again, the Lamb of God. That's the guy. There he is. Because his whole mission is to point to him. The temptation to get followers and a big money ministry with a TV show and everything doesn't matter to John. Point to Jesus. It's all about him. What's the point, Joe? Should be the same for us, right? You want to hear a great bumper sticker? He must increase. I must decrease. The less of me you see, the better. The more of Christ you see, the better. Great bumper sticker. It's kind of long, right? You'd have to have a big... All right. So he says it again. Behold the Lamb of God. When the two disciples, verse 37, heard him say this, they followed Jesus. That's sort of the implication. There he is again. Go for it. And these two guys, we're going to find, we're going to meet him in a second, start following Jesus, start literally walking behind him. They're probably too nervous to say anything. They don't know. What would we even say to him? I don't know. I'd like to ask him some questions. Yeah, me too. Let's just walk behind him. Okay. So they followed Jesus, meaning they just walked behind him. Parenthesis. In this gospel, more than Matthew, more than Luke, more than uh, Mark, more than any other book of the Bible, there are double meanings like crazy, okay? Where there's several layers of meaning. I'll show you in a second what I mean. Uh, I grew up absolutely loving the Beatles, okay? The group from the 60s. Partly because I'm a word guy, a lyrics guy, and the Beatles lyrics were so amazing that they same kind of thing there were hidden meanings in their songs that were you you think oh i know what it means and then you start reading the words you go oh wow eleanor rigby picks up the rice in the church where her wedding has been if your wedding was in the church you don't pick up the rice she's living in a dream the song says it's like the loneliest person in the world anyway Enough about the Beatles. More importantly, let me sing it for you now. No. Um, my point is, one thing I love about the Bible is it's the same way. There are levels of meaning. Let me show you. Watch. So they're followed Jesus. There's one there. That means they just walk behind him. They're not following him yet as disciples. They will. So verse 38, Jesus hears the footsteps turns around, saw them following and says, NIV, what do you want? What do you seek is really the meaning of what he says. He turns around, oh, what do you seek? Now on a basic level, he's asking, what do you want? But there's the double meaning. What do you seek in your life? Is it power? Is it fame? Is it sex? Is it money and riches? Is it notoriety? I want everyone to know my, what do you seek? 
What are you seeking? Right? That's what he asks. Good example. The double meaning thing. Though it's going to be one coming up very quickly again. Watch. What do you seek? What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher. Uh, where are you staying? Okay, that's not an answer, right? It's not. Let's face it. What do you want? Uh, where are you staying? In other words, it's a way of saying, look, you know what? We couldn't say it right here on the road. We have so many questions. We have so many things we want to ask you. John says you're the Lamb of God, for example. What's that about? Who are you? You're supposed to be the one of chosen one of God, and you're before John, yet he's older. And we got a million questions. Where are you staying? We'd like to come hang out, hang out with you. You got the picture? So they kind of fumble over the answer. It's not an answer to what do you want? Where are you staying? They don't want to know. Like, what's your address? We want to send you a postcard. Verse 39. More double meanings, you Beatle fans. Come, he replied, and you will see. Well, doesn't he just mean come and you'll see where I'm staying? Yes. But come to me, he's saying. You want to see spiritually like John did with the dove and he knows who I am? Come to me and your eyes will be open and you will see. Back to the double meanings thing, not to beat a dead horse. In chapter three, Nicodemus is going to come to Jesus. We'll probably get there in two years or something as slow as we go. He's going to come to Nicodemus and Nicodemus is going to ask him, some questions, and Jesus is going to say, you got to be born again, right? And Nicodemus says, you mean like go in my mom's womb a second time? Remember that, John 3? And Jesus says, look, that which is born of flesh is flesh. There's this level. That which is born of spirit, the higher level, is spirit, okay? In chapter 4, he talks to a woman, a Gentile woman, a despised Samaritan, half Jew, half Gentile, and have, they have a discussion at the well. Do you remember that? About water, right? Give me a drink. You don't have a bucket. You can't get water. Well, can I use yours? And he ends up talking to her about spiritual water that's going to flow out of him. And those that believe it's going to flow out of them. Do you see what I mean? Almost every chapter, there's a blind man that gets healed. And the Pharisees want to nail Jesus on, oh, he healed you, what's this? And, and the guy says, look, all I know is I was blind and now I see. Well, he just means he now has vision. Yeah, I know, that's down here. But spiritually, there's a much deeper meaning. Don't go buy Beatle records, buy gospel records. Okay, come and you will see. Verse 39, so they went and saw where he was staying. They spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. It was already the 10th hour is literally how it reads. Is that four in the afternoon? It is. For a Jew, Jews start time at sunrise, 6 a.m. Count 10 hours, 4 p.m. Why is that in there? Because John remembered. The time even. That kind of specific thing isn't something somebody would tell you the story and go, by the way, it was 4 p.m. You might want to write that down. It's a meaningless detail. You know why it's there? Because he remembered it, because he's one of the two guys. Um, let's keep rolling. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what Jesus has said and who has followed him. 
Now we know both their names, John, who never mentions himself, and Andrew, okay, who is Peter, you know, Simon Peter, who's not an apostle yet. Nobody is yet. They're brothers. Andrew's one of the two who heard and who followed. Double meaning. Heard, followed. That's what you did. You heard the gospel from somebody and you followed. Watch. Verse 41. The first thing Andrew did was to go get a sandwich and watch some TV. What was his priority? Food, work, family. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ. Okay? Andrew is a picture of a Christian. If you came to Christ, if you received the gift, if you believe on his name, verse 12 and 13, you're a disciple. But if that's all that happened, you got to be like Andrew. Go tell somebody. Because every, listen, every single person in this room, including me, heard from somebody else. For me, in high school, Gail Schlegel, who's last week was on Zoom. I don't know if she's on tonight. And this guy, Steve Murray, in my high school, one of the most popular kids in our school, came to Christ, stopped drinking, stopped doing drugs, stopped messing around with girls. And a lot of the clique that was he was in with shunned him because he became a Jesus freak. This interested me greatly. You've lost your standing. Was it worth it? One whole summer, Steve Murray came to my house again and again and again, and I would just fire questions at him. I had so many questions, doubts, and he answered me. He's a pastor in San Diego now. Gail lives in Monterey, Salinas somewhere. Anyway, so I invited him to this Bible study. Um, I don't know if Steve is on. I'll find out later tonight. Um, tell somebody. The thing about your testimony is this. Nobody can say, no, that's not true. They can say, no, Jesus isn't the son of God. Okay, that's fine. But let me just tell you, I used to be like this, and he has changed me. He took away from me the desire for drugs, for alcohol, for chasing women. He has changed me. No one can say, no, he didn't. No, really. I know myself. Yes, he did. Personal testimony, right? What kind of car should I buy? If enough people tell me, get a Hyundai or get a Yugo or whatever, then don't do that. Um, that's valuable, right? People telling others about Christ. How shall they hear unless they have a preacher? Doesn't have to be a professional preacher. Tell somebody you know about Jesus, but be prepared for, come on. I invited a bunch of people to the Bible study two weeks ago because we're studying John, which is such a great book to start with. A lot of people went, no thanks to me. It's fine. I expect it. It's not like, oh, I'm hurt. Anyway, the point is, be like Andrew. First thing he does, tell Simon, his brother, look at what he says. We found the Messiah, the Christ. I can picture Peter going, oh, come on. Really? Really, Andrew? They're all, they're fishermen, all three. We found the Messiah, the Christ. Verse two, here it comes, double meaning. And he brought him to Jesus. 
That's what you do when you tell somebody. You tell them, just go home and read the Gospel of John, one chapter every day. It'll take you 20 days-ish, you'll be done. Take you five minutes each time. Bringing people to Jesus. He brought them to Jesus. Jesus looked at him, verse 42. Jesus looked at him, I lost my place. There it is, and said, you are Simon, son of John. Simon Bar-Jonah, son of John. That's the way they would do last names, son of somebody. You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which being translated is Peter. It means rocky. You're going to be like a rock. Some people think Jesus saw in him rock-like qualities. I don't think so. I think just the opposite. I think this is a wild guy that shoots from the hip, ready, fire, aim, instead of ready, aim, fire. But he knew what he was going to make him into and said, I got a new name for you, Peter. It's possible Jesus knows his name supernaturally, by the way. Some scholars said that. Okay, next thing. He, he calls him a rock. That's something you build a foundation on. You build faith on. Not Peter, but his leading of the apostles. You're going to be the leader. So he tells him, I'm going to rename you. Old Testament, Abram gets renamed by God. Abraham. Sarai, Sarah. Jacob, which means deceiver, becomes Israel. God changes people's names into what they will become. I got news for you. You know your name. Look at your driver's license if you forgot it. You have a new name. You say, I, I don't know about that. In the book of Revelation, it says each person is given a white stone with a new name known only to them and to God. He named you something else about what you were going to become in him. And in every case, it's never worse. It's always better. Um, do we want to move on or do we want to quit here? Because um, we're getting close to the end and some of you are asleep. Um, it keeps, as a teacher, let me say, it keeps me humble. Because I here I am teaching and I look up and on Zoom sometimes or here in person, I see this. And then I hear, I, why do you think I say, say amen? Because then you see the person go, right? And they try to look like, no, I was awake. I was, I just had my eyes closed. All right. Go tell someone, you know, the truth. Um, let's see. Don't beat them over the head. Tell them what you know. Um, yeah, let's quit here. That's a good place to quit because we have to do the little closing prayer and everything. Um, if you have questions or comments, you can always email me. If you don't get the email that has the notes that I'm teaching from, um, then just send me an email, say, I don't get the notes. I'd like to get them every week. That's also where you get the link to watch and what have you. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll um, get out of here, shall we? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time. We could be in your word, just mind-blowing. Just chapter one is mind-blowing. We're just filled with awe, with wonder at who and what your son Jesus is, God. We just bow to you and to him, you for sending him and all you are, and him for all that he is. And the grace we see that he loved us and enough to die in our place, it just blows our minds, God. With a savior like him, who is fully God, all-powerful, all-knowing, how big are our problems that you can't handle them, God? 
How dare we even think that? So we give you our problems. We give you our imperfections, knowing that you've already named us something else and you're going to turn us into that slowly and but surely. Thank you that we're sons and daughters of the living God. Mind-blowing again, Father. So thank you for that and that Christ made it possible. May we be like John the Baptist, pointing Jesus or pointing people to Jesus. Andrew, pointing his brother and others to Christ. Help us to keep learning and growing. Thank you for this time, God, and for the answers to prayer that we'll learn about soon. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you all on Zoom for being here. Thank all of you for being here. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. Have a great night. God bless.